Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, we thank you to be here this morning. We thank you for rain. We thank you for your sovereign and mighty hand. We thank you that in your sovereignty and in your might, you are also merciful. That this morning you have given us grace upon grace and new mercies in and through your son, Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. We pray, Father, now that you would be with us, that by your Holy Spirit, you'd use your word to pierce us through that you would teach us something new this morning, not only our minds and intellects, but that it would go straight to our hearts, that we would bow before you as king, and that we would live daily for your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be in Daniel 2. As you can see on our sheet this morning, we have a lot to cover, so I'm not going to read our passage this morning. We're just going to kind of dive right in. We're going to kind of bounce our way around because there's a, a great story here to be told. Uh, in 1800, a German philosopher, Georg Hegel, anyone ever stutter Hegelian philosophy in college like me? I'm the only one lucky enough to do that. Okay. Well, Hegel observed, and this is back in the 1800s, he observed that all of human history is essentially a slaughter bench. All of human history is a chopping block, Hegel said. That basically there are kingdoms that have always come up, they've risen, and every kingdom has fallen, and every time a kingdom falls, it falls in bloody, gory mess. Literally. And he paints this just terrible, stark picture of human history. That it's one kingdom after another kingdom after another kingdom. These great kingdoms, and we'll talk about some of this morning, right? The Babylonian Empire, we'll look at that in detail. Uh, the Greeks, the Romans, go on and on. They have all ended in a big, bloody mess. And he actually meant this observation to be a theodicy. In other words, to be a, a defense of the existence of God. That he argued the reason why all of human history is this bloody war is because with each kingdom rising and falling, it gives rise eventually to the only kingdom left standing. It's the kingdom of God. And what we're going to look at this morning is a, a story, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar have, and an interpretation that Daniel gives to that dream that's not that too dissimilar. It's the story of kings and kingdoms. This reality that we can, with all our human uh, ingenuity, and all our glory builds some of the greatest kingdoms the world has ever known, that human history uh, could ever tell. But every human institution, every human kingdom will have eventually one thing in common. They all fail. Eventually they all fail. They all fall. There is only one kingdom that will last forever. And only one king whose authority can never be thwarted. And the king's name is Jesus Christ, and his kingdom is everlasting. That's what, essentially what we're going to talk about this morning. It's the message of Daniel chapter 2. In a lot of ways, it's the message of Daniel. And I would argue, you could even say it's the message of the Bible. The word kingdom appears over 300 times in the Bible. Over 300. And if you think about uh, even just Jesus preaching alone, what was his message? Matthew tells us his message was the message of the kingdom. 
If you're with us, I'm, I'm getting these Bible studies, which is great now that we've done so many. I'm getting all mixed up. I can't remember. We did the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically, thank you, somebody was here. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is basically a message about the kingdom, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught in parables. Every one of them is essentially a parable about the kingdom, right? The kingdom. The word king, the word king appears even more. Over 2,300 times the word king appears in the Bible. And throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, you'll see Hegel's observation, right? Old Testament filled with bloody descriptions of kings rising and falling, bloody wars, conflict about who's in charge. Here we are. It's America, 21st century. We don't have a king, right? We have a democracy. And we seemingly don't uh, think about a monarchy, kingdom. But the reality is, is every one of us, we bow before kings every single day, do we not? For some of you, that king is yourself. And I'm going to put myself at the front of that line. <laughs> For some of you, you bow before yourself and yourself alone, right? You are the king. For others, these kings take many different forms. It could be a boss, right? Could be your wife. Just going to leave that there. Could be your children, right? It, it could be so many different things that take the role of authority over your life, right? We're also, we spend countless time, dollars, energy building kingdoms. The question is, whose kingdom are you building? What kingdom are you building? What kingdom are you living for? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at God's kingdom and God's kingship through an unlikely source. I want to look through the eyes of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to use a pagan king, and through his eyes, we're going to see the supremacy of the kingship and authority of God alone, and why his kingdom alone lasts forever, okay? So four things we're going to look at very quickly. We're going to look at uh, four things. The first is we're going to look at the king's demand. This is Nebuchadnezzar. So the king's demand. We're going to look at the king's dream, second. Third, we'll look at the king's demise. And lastly, we'll look at the king's declaration. Okay? So first, together we're going to look at the king's demand. And through Nebuchadnezzar, the king, through his eyes, we're going to see God's kingship and the supremacy of his kingdom. And this is his demand, Daniel 2, verse 1. We're told this is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> At this point, I won't get into the detail. Most commentators think that Daniel now is done with his schooling, right, with his Babylonian education. He's now fully kind of ingrained in the Babylonian society. <clears throat> and Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, has had dreams, multiple, multiple dreams. And in these dreams, we're told that his spirit was troubled and that his spirit uh, sleep has left him. And, and throughout the Bible, we see a, a similar story, even with pagan kings. So Pharaoh himself had dreams that Genesis tells us that these dreams came to Pharaoh and troubled him so much that he lost sleep over it. Maybe you've had a dream before that troubled you so much 
that you lost sleep over it. And this is where we find Nebuchadnezzar. Now, before we get any further, I just want to say a few words about Nebuchadnezzar, who he was. Last week, we talked a lot about what the Babylonian Empire was like. This morning, if we're going to study and look through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, we need to understand a little bit about who he was. Um, He is widely recognized, uh, and this is secular history, widely recognized as the greatest emperor uh, of Babylon. And if you're, ever, if you're familiar at all with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, he built those. And this was something that he was famous for. <clears throat> that, uh, like any good uh, totalitarian emperor, he was full of himself, and he was constantly building things that paid homage to himself. So Hanging Gardens of Babylon, he built this wonder, right? This wonder of the world. Why? For himself. To show how supreme, how great, how powerful, how mighty, how great he was. Uh, the Bible now mentions Nebuchadnezzar's name 90 times. <clears throat> 90 times. That's a lot. And Daniel, in particular, Daniel chapters 1 through 4 is the majority of those. You could argue that the first uh, third of Daniel is just as much about Daniel as it is about Nebuchadnezzar. He's a main character of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is also, as famous as he was as being powerful, he was famous for being absolutely terrible, horrendous. That he used his power to, to just wreak havoc, destruction, right? To enslave not only the Jewish people, uh, but he was unkind to his own people, right? This was uh, the worst most full of yourself kind of king you could possibly imagine. And all of this in order to exact his power over his empire. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. He is brutal. He is powerful. He is ambitious. And on that point, both the Bible and history agree. But what the Bible gives us, in particular Daniel 2 and the subsequent chapters, is a little bit more uh, in-depth look at um, who Nebuchadnezzar was, not just in the way he ruled, but how he thought and how he wrestled. So here's this powerful, ambitious king who's been having these dreams, these dreams that are so troubling to him that it's keeping him up at night. And so in verse 2, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar commands all of these magicians, we talked about them last week, right, these enchanters, these magicians that even Daniel was better than, He calls these so-called wise men of Babylon to himself, and he gives them this command. Verse 3, he says, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And what I want you to notice is he said, verse 1, where he had dreams, and now he's saying, I had a dream. And most commentators think that what's happening here is Nebuchadnezzar is having a recurring dream. It's a recurring nightmare. One dream, it's happening over and over and over and over again. And he's losing sleep. His spirit is troubled. And so he tells them, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So verse 4, these wise men, these uh, Chaldeans, these uh, uh, magicians come to the king. And here we talked about this last week. It says they come to him in Aramaic. And here, right here begins for the the next uh, six chapters or so, Aramaic. Aramaic in the book of Daniel. O king, live forever, they say. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And here's how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Verse 5, the word from me is firm, 
If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So what's his demand? Not only does Nebuchadnezzar want to know what the dream is interpreted as, what else does he want to know? What the dream is. And, and we don't know whether uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar just being Nebuchadnezzar. Like, in other words, I'm just going to mess with you guys. Like, you need to tell me what I dreamed. That's well within the possibility of a brutal king like this. Perhaps he was testing them, testing their ability. In other words, I can't trust the interpretation unless you can tell me what I dreamed. Maybe that's an option. Or maybe he forgot. We don't know. We don't know. I would argue for one of the first two. Knowing his character, either he's just messing with them, or what he's probably doing, he's probably testing them, testing their ability. Either way, these wise men come to him and say, that's impossible. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. And over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar says, that's not what I asked. You're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And if you can't, what's going to happen? I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And he's not kidding. It's not a euphemism. Literally, he's going to have them quartered. He's going to have them utterly destroyed. That's his demand. A brutal demand. A brutal demand. And so these wise men, over, they come to him and they say, we can't do that. You, you have to tell us the truth. And he says, no. And eventually he loses his patience. And he orders that every so-called wise man in Babylon be destroyed. That was his order. So, enter Daniel. The king's dream. Daniel, verse 24, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Daniel, all the wise men are ordered to be destroyed. Now, if you know, Daniel's been trained as a wise man of Babylon. So what does that mean for Daniel? What's it mean for his three friends? You're going to be killed too. And so Daniel comes to uh, the chief of the king's court, Arioch, in verse 24. And, and he says, okay... Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now notice Daniel doesn't say, don't destroy me and my three friends. What does he say? I'm representing all of us. <laughs> now, who's, who's the us? Daniel's held captive in Babylon, and here he is representing the people that have exiled him. He's a Jew in exile, and yet here he is saying, don't destroy any of them. Let me be their representative, right? Let me be the one to interpret the dream. So verse 25, we're told that Arioch brings da Daniel before the king. Notice what he says. He says, I have found from among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known uh, to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Remember we talked about that last week. Uh, that is Daniel's new Babylonian name. And what does he ask him? He asks him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? So there's the demand again. Let me know the dream and the interpretation. Verse 27, this is Daniel's answer, and it is phenomenal. He says, he begins by saying the same thing that all the wise men have been saying. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers 
can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. And if we had the time to look back the first parts of this chapter, you'd see it's the same thing that the wise men are saying themselves. No, no one's able to do this. But Daniel doesn't stop there. He goes on. No wise man is able to do this, but, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. So notice what Daniel's saying. Look, no one can fulfill your request. No one. None of your wise men can, but there is a God who can, Yahweh. And he alone, he alone is the one who can make known your dreams, who can reveal these mysteries. Not even I can do it, Daniel will go on to say. Verse 30, look at verse 30. He says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king. So Daniel's message is clear. I'm not wise. None of your so-called wise men are wise. No, only God alone. God alone is supreme. God alone is authoritative. God alone is wise. And he will be the one to make known to you the dream. And this is the dream, verse 31. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here for the sake of time. You can read on it. The dream just covers a few verses. But essentially, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of this great giant statue. And the statue, its head, is a head of gold a head of gold, and as the statue moves down, it's made of different material. So while the head is made of gold, the chest and arms are made of silver. And as you go down to an abdomen and middle, and the thighs are made of bronze, the legs are made of iron, and the feet are made of iron and clay. So you have the image in your mind, this great statue, head of gold, and as you move down the statue, you have different materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. And what is so troubling to Nebuchadnezzar is as he's looking at this statue, a great rock, this great rock comes. It's a rock that we're told is made not with human hands, right? And it comes and attacks the feet of the statue and the statue topples over, crumbles into dust, and is blown away by the wind. And then this rock grows and grows and becomes a mountain. And that's the dream. Now, if you had this dream over and over and over again, maybe you'd be troubled too. But here's Nebuchadnezzar. He wants to know, what does it mean? A few things I want you to notice about this dream. The first is, think about it. You have, to have it in your mind's eye. Think of a giant statue that is made of gold on top, descending metals, and then the feet are really made of clay mixed with iron. What do you think the problem with that statue is? It's a little top-heavy, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little top-heavy. And the foundation, what would you say about the foundation? Yeah, it's made of clay. It's not very strong. It's brittle. So you have this really tall, great statue that's very top-heavy, with a terrible foundation. What else do you notice about the metals, how they descend? Right, the finest is on top, right? The most ornate, the most beautiful, the most precious. And as you go, you're descending, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. So that's what I want you to know. That's the first thing I want you to know. The other thing I want you to notice is, and I mentioned it, the stone that comes in to destroy. It's specifically, we're told, 
was not made by human hands. That's going to be important. Okay, so that's the dream. That's the dream. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar what he's been dreaming this whole time, and Daniel's exactly right. That is the dream. So this is the interpretation. Number three, the king's demise. The king's demise. And here we're going to slow down a little bit. The king's demise. Look at verse 36. So Daniel says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And I'm going to stop right here for just a second. Who's Daniel talking to? He's talking to a pagan Babylonian king. A brutal dictator Babylonian king. And what did he just tell him? Yahweh, not your gods, Yahweh is the one who's given you power. Yahweh is the one who's given you authority. Yahweh is the one who has given you strength. And we need to take note of this in so many ways. One, this is instruction to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to tell you where your power comes from. But I think it's also instruction for all of us as God's people. As again, as we've noticed last week, who is the one that put the Jewish people, the people of Judah, into Babylon? Who is the one ultimately that sent them into exile, that delivered them in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Who did that? God did. Who is the one that put this brutal dictator into power? Who did that? God did. It's a message not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a message for us. God is sovereign over all kings and all kingdoms, even the most pagan, even the most brutal. Even in this moment where Daniel finds himself in exile, he recognizes God is in charge. And he is the one who has put Nebuchadnezzar into power. He is the one who's given him might and strength and glory. Verse 38, and into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, to all his power, all his rule. And this is what he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. All right. So now we're going to get into the interpretation. Essentially, we have four different kingdoms that Daniel sees in this dream, an interpretation that comes from God himself. And the first kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon under the reign and rule of Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the gold, the gold head. I don't know if any of y'all watch the, the Grammys. Anybody, big Grammy watchers? No, me neither. Um, <clears throat> but I did see some pictures and uh, read some articles about it. And what I was struck by watching some of these performances is how pagan they were, and not in the sense of how we use the word, like literally pagan gods and goddesses. So uh, Beyonce's performance you have this picture of her, and it looks like this pagan goddess, right? Multiple arms coming out. It's interesting why that was chosen. Now, I don't know if you're a CeeLo Green fan. He's a really interesting character, but I didn't see any of this that night, but I did see pictures later that he came dressed as a giant golden statue. And his head was just literally it was just a mask that he was wearing that was gold. And it, literally, it descended from gold into silver, into bronze, and into iron. And I have no idea, probably not, if he was going for Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. <laughs> but 
as I was talking to my wife last night uh, about what I was teaching this morning, she said, you know, somebody actually put up on social media a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's statue and a picture of CeeLo <laughs> and compared the two, which is people have too much time on their hands. But here's the point. I want you to see in your mind's eye, whether it's a picture of CeeLo, probably not, this golden head. And, and what Daniel is saying is that golden head is Nebuchadnezzar's image. It's his face. It's who he is. It represents the kingdom of Babylon. But as he moves down, verse 39, he says, Another kingdom inferior shall rise after you. It's going to be inferior to you, but it's going to rise after you. In other words, you could be stronger than the next kingdom after you. But again, if you are a human kingdom, a human institution, you have a common destiny. You will fail. It doesn't matter how strong and mighty you are. Even a kingdom less powerful than you could come after you. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And, a third, and that's the silver. And then a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And what we'll find later in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 and 8, these kingdoms are named. They're named specifically. The second kingdom, the silver one, right? That's Medo-Persia under the rule of Cyrus. And we'll hear more about Cyrus later in the book of Daniel. All right, so that's the second kingdom. The third kingdom is the kingdom of Greece, under Alexander the Great. So again, what Daniel, what is he doing? He's interpreting this vision. He's saying, look, your kingdom, the Babylonian, it will fall. And after it will come this Persian kingdom under Cyrus, and it also will fall. And after it, another kingdom, the kingdom of Greece will come under Alexander the Great, and it too will fall. Verse 40, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So a kingdom even greater than these, as strong as iron, that will rule the world. What kingdom do you think that will be? Rome, you got it. It's Rome. This great kingdom that will shatter all. It will be Rome. But we're told that even it will become brittle. Even it will become weak. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, Rome shall be a divided kingdom. Right? It shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. And as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage but will not hold together, just an iron does not mix with clay. Now this has given people, commentators, fits, trying to figure out what on earth, how do we, somebody needs to interpret Daniel's interpretation. Like how do, what do we do with this? And there's a lot of theories. One theory is that what we're looking at is just the demise of Rome. Just a, a, an interpretation of how Rome itself eventually became brittle, right? And became destroyed. That's one. One interpretation is what we're looking at is actually a, a so-called fifth kingdom. A fifth kingdom, and that this kingdom has taken many, many forms, many different interpretations. This kingdom could be a, a Rome to be, uh, come later, that somehow is going to come together again in the last days. Uh, that's one interpretation. Uh, one is this represents all of the kingdoms of humanity after Rome, right? These kingdoms dispersed all over the world. Uh, no longer an empire like the Roman Empire, but now we don't have that as much anymore, do we? Right? We have these nations scattered all over the world. 
Perhaps that's what it's talking about. Lots of different interpretations. Uh, a few things just to point out. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. One, uh, people have focused in on the idea of marriage, right? So they will mix together in marriage. What does that mean? Well, the translation is not even that good, actually. The, the Hebrew itself is seed of man. So they're going to mix together the seed of man. Right? The idea of all of these nations kind of coming together, mixing, being sent out all over the world. That's the idea. And with all of these theories, I think we have to be careful, and this is a good rule of thumb, not only for Daniel, but we had this rule of thumb in, in Revelation, is we must be careful not to practice eisegesis. And what eisegesis is, is when you're reading into, that's the word eis in Greek, you're reading into a biblical text, your own agenda, your own interpretation. In other words, you have a presupposition, you're looking for something, and you read it into the text. And many people do that. We, we have to be careful not to over-interpret Daniel's interpretation. That's going to be very important, not only for Daniel 2, but especially as we get into the later uh, chapters of the book. You cannot over-interpret Daniel's interpretation. If you do that, you're playing a really bad game of like spiritual telephone. You know, where, okay, here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's the, the vision that God gave Daniel, and now we're going to try to interpret that. And now we're so far removed that we're just reading ourselves into it. So here's what I think. I think much like much of the prophecy in um, the Bible, much like the book of Revelation, I think Daniel, his interpretation, his vision, has very specific kingdoms in mind. He tells us so in the book of Daniel itself, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. But in so much as we're also looking at these specific kingdoms, I think he also has in mind human institution and human kingship throughout all of human history. That there's an immediate prophecy to what Daniel sees in this dream, but there's also a prophecy that is yet to come. And the point is this, kingdoms will rise and they will fall, and only the kingdom of God lasts forever. And we see this we see this with the great stone. Verse 44. In those days, the kings of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. A great God has made known to the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be after this? The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. In other words, there is a greater kingdom that is to come, represented by this stone cut without human hand. This rock, the kingdom of God, under his authority, will destroy all of these human kingdoms, and it will last forever. And you can't read this without thinking about the rock. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The king, the authority, Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, whose kingdom will have no end. Jesus, in the book of Luke, tells a parable, and the parable is this, Luke 20, verse 9, he says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went after the country for a long while. 
And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would bring some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third who was also wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. All right, so if you've listened to this, maybe you've heard this parable before, this vineyard, right? And the vineyard, by the way, throughout Old Testament is it's Israel. So here's the vineyard. And here's time and time again, God sending prophets who've been beaten, destroyed, right? For speaking the truth about God. And so God sends his beloved son. Surely they would listen to his own son. And what do they do? They crucify the son on the cross. They deliver him to death. Right? These tenants of the vineyard, the people of Israel, under whose authority? The last kingdom, the fourth kingdom, Roman Empire. They crucify Jesus Christ. But notice this is what Jesus says after. He says this. He says, What then that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The King of kings and Lord of lords was delivered up to die under Roman authority by the demand of the people of Israel. This king who was rejected, who laid his life down, in his death and in his resurrection became king over all and established a kingdom that will reign forever. And so this morning I ask you, what kings are you bowing down to? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? What kingdom are you afraid of? Do you find yourself bowing down to the kingdoms of this world? Or do you recognize that there is a king and a kingdom that is supreme, that will reign and rule forever? Lastly, I'm going to send you to your tables. The king's declaration. Verse 46 after Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and I want you to think about, this is a brutal, totalitarian emperor who's just been told that Yahweh, not his Babylonian gods, but the Jewish God, is the one that put him into authority, that his kingdom's going to fall and give rise to a lesser kingdom, and that all of these kingdoms are going to fall because of the kingdom of God. How do you think he's going to react? His, his, his reaction to the interpretation should surprise us. Verse 46, we're told King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. It's an amazing scene if you really think about it. 
First, that Daniel would actually have the audacity to say any of this to him. Again, he's in exile. He's the minority. He is the slave. And he just told his king, his authority, his emperor, who has threatened to kill everybody, that you are not in charge. There is a king who is better than your king. There is a God who is better than your gods. And his kingdom will last, outlast your kingdom by eternity. Daniel wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth of God. Why? Because I think he feared the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of man. He feared the kingdom of God more than he feared the kingdom of man. And he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of what Nebuchadnezzar might do to him. He told the truth because it was God's truth. And Nebuchadnezzar's response should surprise us. He doesn't destroy Daniel. But it's complicated, isn't it? Because notice, who does he worship? Well, on one hand, you could say it seems like he worships God. He says God, Yahweh. He is, he is the God of all gods. He is the authority over all kings. But who else does he worship? He worships Daniel. So the story still doesn't end well for Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's still a polytheist. Right? And as a good polytheist, he's worshiping both Yahweh now and Daniel. He's paying homage to Daniel. And notice, what does Daniel do? He doesn't correct him. He doesn't correct him. And at this moment, we're told that Daniel is established as the head of King Nebuchadnezzar's court. An exiled Jew as the head of the Babylonian court. As one commentator put this, Trimper Longman, this is great, the most powerful pagan in the world lay before an exiled Jew. And that's the scene. That's the scene. And what I want you to understand is that for us today, as we find ourselves so afraid of the institutions that we find ourselves under, often afraid to speak the truth of God's kingdom, the question is why? Why do you feel that way? I want you to wrestle with that at your table. Because the burden of proof does not lie on you. The burden of proof was not on Daniel. Now, the burden of proof lies on the stone, the rock, who for some, that cornerstone is a rock of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. It's a rock that will destroy. But for all those who believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for their salvation, the rock of Christ becomes a refuge, a strong tower, a fortress. It is a rock of salvation. Let me pray for you and let me send you to your tables. Father, as we get into these parts of Daniel, um, it is so easy to get lost, lost in these details, lost in these things that seem foreign to us, not only a dream and interpretation of the dream, but even lost in trying to wrap our minds around being under a king and a, a kingdom. Father, I pray that as we wrestle around our tables with these questions, that you'd help us identify the kings and kingdoms of our own lives those kings that we bow down to and those kingdoms that we are constantly trying to build. And I pray as we leave this place, you would give us a greater vision of your authority, your kingship, your majesty, that we would bow down before you and you alone. And that we would seek in all things, whether it's work, whether it's parenthood, whether it's being um, a son of God, that we would in all things would build up your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.